Hi everyone, I'm Jordan from the Progressive Podcast. I'm joined today with Chris Lowe Nutrition. Um, and today we're just going to chat about all things to do with nutrition, dieting, and some of the common mistakes that a lot of people make. So Chris, do you want to introduce yourself and just talk about what it is you do? Yeah, so first of all, John, thank you very much for having me on board. Um, really looking forward to today's discussion. Um, so in terms of myself, uh, like you mentioned, I have my online consultancy called Chris Lowe Nutrition, where... I guess my goal is to sort of educate and empower athletes so they can always perform at their best when it matters the most. So I do this via two ways. So I do this via uh, one-to-one coaching, which is my online three-month program. And then I also do it indirectly through educating and mentoring strength and conditioning coaches so they can have essentially greater impact with their own athletes' results uh, through nutrition programming and so on. Uh, alongside all my online work, I'm also the lead nutritionist at Wasps Rugby. I've been with them um, in some way, shape or form for the last two years. So I'm basically uh, responsible for the provision and support. Uh, so nutrition support uh, for the junior academy through to senior academy, all the way into the uh, first 15 and senior squad. So essentially, um, yeah, that's kind of how I work in general and kind of me in a nutshell. Uh, very much sort of dedicated to, again, educating and empowering um, athletes to perform at their best. And this is done kind of in three ways through WASPs and my online work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. And um, so you've been working with the WASP for two years now. And have you, has there any, even made, made any major sort of learning curves that you've made while working at them, working with uh, the WASPs team? Yeah, so I guess before that, I was working with uh, Hull KR, which is a rugby league super league team, which I was with them for about four years. And, you know, just um, also like the perhaps the demands of the game are very similar. And you generally think like the general characteristics of the game is pretty similar. Um, but just in terms of the overall sort of setup and support they have, and I guess the different type of personalities and individuals they have in the club as well. So it's very much... Um, for me, the learning curve was just, again, to grips with just the type of people I'm sort of dealing with and the different sort of educational levels and how to sort of coach them differently. So it's perhaps not necessarily to do with the nutrition side of things as a learning curve, but it's more in terms of the environment and the culture I had to sort of uh, learn pretty quickly with. So I think that's perhaps the, the major sort of learning point there and perhaps going into more from like rugby league to rugby union, like the budget's different and we do a little bit more, um, which kind of sort of opened up my sort of planning and everything there. But yeah, from the nutrition side of it, I think it's, um, it's pretty similar. It's um, yeah, still just amazing to see like uh, the actual sort of training demands, recovery demands and everything that we have to plan for is just, is just pretty cool. Um, like some of these bigger boys pushing you know, upwards of like five and a half, six thousand calories a day in a big training day. So just trying to, you know, plan for that and make sure they can get everything in so they're feeling well, uh, they can perform at the best in their training sessions, recover well, um, you know, maximize adaptation and not get too run down. And, you know, they, they stick up their hands every weekend so they're available to play um, because it's nice and fresh throughout the training week. So I think that's probably the, the main things we've been sort of focusing on and perhaps the biggest learning curve there. Yeah, yeah. And um, so moving away then from uh, the sort of the elite athletes there, uh, what do you find is like the, the most common diet mistakes that you get for like, say, for your average Joe, you know, because I know you do um, online like coaching and stuff like that there with uh, just regular people as well for their nutrition and training. 
And so what do you find that people make the most mistakes with? You know, what's their what's the most common diet mistakes you see? Yeah, so I think perhaps like um, first and foremost, like probably the biggest misconception is that I guess like elite athletes are still people first and they generally have the same same problems as everyone else. They still have the same sort of stress, frustrations, um, dieting sort of problems, all that kind of stuff. So you can kind of, um, yeah, just associate the two quite nicely. Um, I think the first foremost is if they're thinking of dieting in the realms of, say, fat loss, um, I guess like we, we know that we need a calorie restriction in order to drop body fat. But a lot of people will perhaps think of that as like a food elimination as well. So firstly, they just kind of remove all the sort of favorite foods and therefore don't have any balance in the diet and therefore compromise the sustainability and longevity of their approach. And, you know, you can sort of diet pretty hard and aggressively for four weeks by cutting out all your favorite foods. But, you know, what you always see is like, yes, you get a great before and after photo, but as cliche as it sounds, like what does the after-after photo look like? And usually um, what research has shown and anecdotal, that everybody just tends to rebound. So it's very easy to say that we don't necessarily have a fat loss problem uh, in this world at the moment. It's very much like a fat maintenance kind of problem. Like we just can't maintain our results. And that really comes down to perhaps just doing things too quickly, too fast, and just not really having the opportunity to build really good habits and behaviors throughout the process. And it's what I say, I guess, a lot of people do. They jump on a program where that's like an online coaching program with a coach or what have you. Their motivation is high. They have loads of accountability. But then when they're left to their own devices, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know why they're doing anything. And then they, you know, they relapse and fall off um, the wagon, essentially. And that's why. Um, Do you think, is it because then they're too dependent on the coach? You know, they rely on the coach too much. Do you think that's sort of maybe what's triggering that? I think in part, yeah. Um, Like I have a big thing with all my sort of coaching programs um, and with the Boys of Wasps is to make them self-sufficient. So they have full autonomy of what they're doing. So they know exactly why, when, and how they're doing everything. So I don't want to be holding someone's hand for the next sort of five years, you know. Um, <laughs> I want to make sure, yeah. like, they know exactly what they're doing. Like, I heard, like, nice quote, like, years ago when I first started, and, you know, whether it's right or wrong, but the role of a good coach is to make themselves redundant. You know, you know you're taking the athlete through or the, the person you work with through all the steps needed so they know exactly why they're doing it, how they're doing it, when they're doing it. So they don't have to rely on you. They're self-sufficient. And ultimately, that's a really good outcome for me. And that's why I say at the end of my coaching programs is like, right, whether it's three months or six months, depending on your education level, you need to be able to do this for the rest of your life on your own. And I'm going to make sure you have the tools necessary to do that. So that's why I don't like say, um, like, right, give someone like a meal plan to follow and then no support with it. There's no coaching. There's no sort of uh, education along with it because once like you remove the coach or you remove the meal planning that's been done by you then what they're doing they don't know what they're doing and you know that's when people tend to drop off and you see this a lot with sort of research as well is they may do like a three six twelve month intervention or have you which they would sort of go to like a laboratory or see a dietitian or something like that and they'd be given meal plans or even like the food itself and yes they make big progress but after that, when they move themselves from that sort of situation, they just relapse and they don't know what they're doing. So they just pile all the way back on. It's very much a yo-yo effect. 
Um, so yeah, I think that's um, a big thing that plays comes into play with long-term sustainable results. Now, like, I appreciate like there are times where we can go into dieting phases more aggressively with bigger calorie restrictions and stuff. But again, if that compromises the long-term sustainability of what you're doing, then there's no real sort of point in it. Like, yes, fat loss diet and dieting is going to be a challenge and it will be um, inevitable sort of compromise and trade-offs associated with that. You know, more hunger, increased food focus, cravings and stuff. But as long as it's manageable, then that's ultimately absolutely fine. And again, as long as that doesn't compromise a long-term um, approach to your diet, that's that's a very good thing. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and so you think what you're saying is then is, is by allowing people to understand, you know, the reasons behind the diet plan or, you know, what the, the, the advice that you're giving them allows them to maintain it for a more sustainable period, you know what I mean? So say, for instance, like the rest of their life, if, if you know yeah. what I mean? because yeah. they understand it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I th- yeah, I think if they understand like the underlying principles why they're doing everything, uh, they perhaps can have greater buy-in to it as well. So it is in the case of like, right, we're going to have protein with every meal, perhaps in between four to six meals a day to maximize adaptation, recovery and stuff. You know, if I just said like, right, we're just having protein in our diet in this sort of frequency, they, you know, they don't have much buy into it. But if they understand how it kind of works and why this probably going to be very important to distribute your protein and take that away and stuff, they probably could be more mindful of it going forward. Like, all right, am I evenly distributing my protein throughout the day? Am I having protein every sort of maybe three to four hours to maximize most protein synthesis? Am I doing X, Y, Z? So, you know, yeah. So when they have like a great understanding of what they're doing, yeah, I think it builds a buy-in and, you know, once they, depends, I guess, how you work as well, but many sort of athletes would kind of work um, off like a decent sort of structure and schedule. And if they know how to build that structure and schedule, then yeah, I think it's going to develop sort of longer term sort of habits and uh, adherence to their approach. Uh, yeah, and that's probably one of the main things around diet and nutrition that I would say is trying to create habits that are, you know, that, that support your diet, if you know what I mean, that support it. Mm. yeah yeah absolutely uh for sure uh especially when it comes to like you know long-term sort of results and having autonomy of what you're doing yeah i think you, you definitely need to do that you know that needs to be like your new norm so it is in the case of like right i'm dieting this week like you know that should just be your your norm now so, you know these healthy eating habits it should be sort of effortless um granted when you change habits yeah. uh or building new habits um you know it is going to be difficult it is going to be a challenge but the more you do this through repetition the easier it gets and it just becomes like a, a new way of life and you know again as cliche as it sounds like this is a lifestyle sort of approach we're looking at it isn't just like um you know having vegetables with every meal there's more to it than just like the nutrition side of things perhaps it's a mindset shift too yeah 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 and um I think I think that's what people sort of get confused of is they just they're thinking about it as a four week kind of thing you know or or a six week kind of thing of right I need to eat vegetables and protein for this next six weeks I'm not thinking of it as like well if I create a habit that I you know make sure that I get protein with every single meal that I will then have a longer healthier lifestyle in the sense of you know you you'll be able to adapt or you'll have created a habit around doing it, you know what I mean? So you'll have created a habit around mm. putting protein in, in your food to, to make your meals more um, satiating and stuff and maintain your diet kind of thing. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think like habit overload is perhaps one thing that people, a lot of people try and do as well. You know, they try and sometimes go into it too quickly, too fast. And, you know, if they don't have any experience with sort of nutrition before um, and they try and do like 25 things all at once, they're going to get overwhelmed and burnt out and not do anything. Like they just think like, why this is just too hard. I can't sustain this. So what's the point? But if they started one small thing, and made that a habit, then the next one, and then the next one. And then over time, it might take six to 12 months, but they can have pretty sort of concrete habits. And then four, you know, they'll make greater change over time. So it could be a case of, right, we know what, say, quote unquote, a healthy diet looks like. Um, If you try to get someone from, say, a highly sort of processed food Mm -hmm. diet and poor lifestyle habits onto this straight away, Yes, they could do for two to three weeks while motivation is high, but most likely they'll just drop off. So sometimes the slow approach is far more beneficial and we just have to make them very aware of this. So it could be a case of, right, can we just get some protein in your in your diet to improve like, you know, the overall sort of um, fullness you're going to have and to improve like muscle, like adaptation recovery, right? At a scale of um, one to 10, how likely is it? Can you get protein in your diet three times a day, seven days a week? And if they come back, like, right, I think that's about a six out of 10 likeliness. It's like, okay, we don't actually go for that approach. I always use a seven out of 10 approach. So if it's above seven out of 10 likeliness to happen, we proceed with that goal and try and chase that new habit. But if it's under seven out of 10, we adjust this all goal and move the goalpost there. And then we think perhaps in that same example, okay, on a scale of one to 10, can we get two protein meals in uh, a day, seven days a week? If they say like, yes, I think that's about an eight, right, we'll lock that in. That's our goal for the next week. We do that. We'll check back in end of the week. How did you get on? Perfect. I absolutely smashed that. Okay, now can we try and do, you know, three to four meals a day, seven days a week, high in protein. Then like, right, okay, about a seven or eight now out of 10 likeness, I can do that. So what we're doing is all starting with the barrier quite low and then build more layers in over time as they build motivation, I'm sorry, build momentum. And, you know, when they build momentum, they feel get confidence and they feel like, right, I could do this, I could do more, I could do more, I could do more, rather than having this habit overload and feel really overwhelmed and just sort of drop off and just think like, right, I'm a failure. It's just another dieting approach. I failed. I'm a failure. I can't be asked for this anymore. So, yeah, doing things too fast, too soon is sometimes uh, very bad uh, for long-term sort of results. But sometimes... Let's say, for example, if I'm working with a boxer and they got like a six-week camp and, you know, they're like a stone overweight and they come to me last minute, which they always end up doing, and like, Chris, I need to get all this weight off. You know, I can't spend the first three months, three weeks trying to get more protein into the diet. It has to be quite hard and quite fast um, because we just need to make fast results very, very quickly. So it really comes down to like the time frame, the motivational level, um, and, you know, I guess the urgency of that end goal as well. So yeah, it's very much person specific, but generally speaking on a whole, slow is usually a better approach to doing things. Yeah, definitely would agree to that. Yeah, and and, and as we were saying there, it's more sustainable, you know what I mean? It's more achievable and more sustainable. Um, and a lot of us are, you know, have a lot of time in our hands now with lockdown, you know, so it could be an opportunity to develop a new habit. Um, and is there any simple tips that you could um, sort of give that, help people to reduce their calories during lockdown so i know we kind of said there um increasing your protein because it's more satiating it's more fulfilling like it makes you feel fuller for longer um is there anything else you could say sort of as a simple tip to help 
you know, reduce your calories during lockdown, you know, because obviously we're not moving as much. Um, and we're pro- most people are probably still eating the same or if not more because they're bored. Is there any sort of wee tips that you might have? Yeah, so um, the biggest thing that I think everybody can really focus on now is just making sure their eating environment supports their goals and their activity levels. So we know that when we're, you know, shall we say like you're going to be a product of your environment, aren't you? So, you know, if you have these like high fat, high sugar, hyper palatable foods in the cupboards, when you're stressed, frustrated or bored, you're more likely to go and eat them. We know that um, these high fat, high sugar foods, you know, your crisps, your cookies, your Oreos, ice cream, all that kind of stuff has very sort of calming effect on the body. And we know that if we're either, you know, frustrated or stressed with this lockdown um, or just stressed in general, um, we have more impulsive reactions. And so you see this not only like, say, in the, in the kitchen and eating environment, but also say like on the on the field when say like a player would say lash out and not really think about it. It's like an impulsive reaction. So going back to that sort of uh, train of thought, you know, if we're stressed, um, we know that these high fat, high sugar foods are having a calming effect. So we just impulsively go and grab them, eat them and have this calming effect. Now, what we know then is that this triggers something called food reward and the more you essentially sort of um, give into this sort of process, more sort of reinforces and strengthens it. And essentially, it's just f- much, um, so to say, far more difficult for you to sort of resist that because this impulsiveness um, increases each time. It's almost just like a subconscious sort of habit. You know, you're stressed, you grab it, eat it, and then without even sort of thinking. Um, so a big thing for me is just really sort of, you know, create the environment so the environment creates you. So that's a really sort of big key thing. You know, by all means, I talked about sort of having a load of balance with the approach, perhaps this 80-20 rule, where 80% of your food is, you know, naturally occurring, minimally processed foods that cover like your nutrition bills, shall we say, you know, um, so your micronutrients and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then 20% can come for whatever it wants, assuming that you are within your calorie quota for the day or for the week. But if you're sort of um, having these types of foods in your house, these 20% type foods, but they're a trigger food, then that we know that 20% is probably going to turn into about 40 or 50%. So a trigger food would be like, um, say like you get a pack of crisps or a pack of like Oreos or something like that. Can you just have one, enjoy it and put the whole packet back? You know, if you can, that's cool. We can keep those kind of cupboards. So those kind of foods in the cupboards, but if you can't, and, you know, one cookie leads into the next and next and next. And then it opens up the gateway for everything else. And the whole sort of kitchen sink goes with it as well. Um, you know, this is a trigger food and that is very much just like self-sabotage. So those foods are probably going to be wise to keep out of the eating environment. So your kitchen, your living room, stuff like that, because we know they're going to be sort of very detrimental to your long-term goals and body composition and overall health. So, That'd be the first thing I look at doing to not only control your eating behaviors, but really just to focus on decreasing your calorie intake as well. Um, second thing as well, um, if you do happen to have, if you have to have those kind of foods in the cupboards that perhaps appease like family members and stuff like that, then you essentially just do like a little bit of if then planning. So I find this to be really so beneficial, not only with the boys of wasps, but my own sort of coaching clients as well. And you essentially just grab a piece of A4 paper, put two cal- columns and essentially, like if then is planning is if I want this, then I do this. So it could be in the if then column. Like if I want, then you just list down all your foods. 
no chocolate crisps, ice cream, cookies, what have you. And then you just do an arrow to the next column. Then I get this. And then you almost have like a preloaded um, strategy then, which is going to be foods that are perhaps more health promoting. So it'd be fruits, um, could be nuts, seeds, it could be higher protein based foods that is going to support your goal. So, you know, you stick that in front of the food that you naturally want to grab. So say you put in the cupboard where all the sort of cookies and stuff are. So it says like, right, if I want to grab a cookie, then I grab a protein bar or a piece of fruit. So we know that these actions are going to be very much impulsive. So just having something in front of you there that you can read that almost just snaps you out of it and gives you that alternative option. Um, you know, it works very, very well in my experience. Um, but don't get me wrong, it's not foolproof. Like it doesn't work 100% of the time, but if it works most of the time, that's ultimately going to be a very good thing. So if then planning is a really strong sort of strategy to use, as simplistic as it sounds, it just works really well. Um, yeah, so they'd be kind of like the, the two main ones, just really focusing around sort of the eating environment. And when we think about sort of um, nutrition strategies, we always focus on like a low-hanging fruit. Like what's the thing we can remove or change that's going to yield the biggest results? Um, most most of the time now, people are, you know, like I say, got more time in their hands, so they are cooking a little bit more and perhaps are cooking a little bit more healthier meals perhaps. But if they all got all this stuff in their cupboard that's going to be self-sabotaging, then that'll be something we need to address pretty quickly. Um, and like you said, boredom eating is a massive one as well. So if we can just mold that environment and just not have these foods in the cubs in the first place, it's going to be very beneficial for overall sort of um, body weight maintenance or progress during this phase. So they're the two big things I sort of really look at uh, focusing on at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I, I like the, um, you know, the the, the columns that you said. Um, if that, what is it again? Just so I, just so everyone can hear. It. Is that is basically like um, if then planning? Columns, you know, for the eating. yeah, if then planning. So if then planning. Yeah, yeah. yeah just real simple. Um, grab a piece of A4 paper, line straight down the middle. On the left side, you put like if. So it's like if I want, and then you just put all those lists of foods beneath it, and then in the right hand column. Um, then I grab, then put all the list of like health promoting foods or goal promoting foods on the right. And you just put like a nice arrow over to the other sort of column when you do fancy sort of, um, or if you feel like you are going to deviate. Um, just real, real sort of simple sort of way. But you have to sort of write this down and have this in front of you so it's visible. You can't just kind of remember this stuff because again, if our reactions are impulsive, we don't necessarily think overly well. And I like the saying of like, you know, when emotions are high, intelligence is low. Like if you're stressed and you're pissed off, you're frustrated, you don't think straight. So just by having something in front of you will kind of snap you out of that and it make you most of the time grab the um, better decision, the better option. Yeah, yeah, no, that is, a, that is, I think that would be very useful for a lot of people, even as simple as that, you know, as simple as that is, that is, it is, you know, I feel like it could be very effective for a lot of people, you know, it's just giving them another option to choose from whenever they want something like cookies or or chocolate or whatever it is um, yeah so yeah that's no perfect. and that works in loads um, of different scenarios um, yeah 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 it does it work it would work for anyone you know it would work for you know your top level athletes right down to your average person you know it it's it's very simple psychological technique i suppose yeah. to sort of train yourself into eating healthier foods yeah like say for example for myself like um outside of nutrition like if i uh, i still do this if then planning so if for example i'm procrastinating and i go on instagram 
and I'm like, I know I'm wasting time. It's like, right, if I go on Instagram, then I stretch my hip flexors because, you know, I sit down pretty much 10 hours a day. I get very tight hip flexors. So I'm kind of swapping one bad habit for a perhaps a health promoting habit. You know, it's outside of nutrition for me, but I know that I stretch my hip flexors is going to improve like my sort of overall sort of like lower back pain and stuff like that. Um, so just, just little things like that um, is going to be really beneficial. Like don't think of it just for nutrition. It works in any kind of context with any type of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, a lot of people then obviously, you know, struggle to, to do different things with their diet. And there's lots of different methods and different variations of diet. And um, have you any thoughts on intermittent fasting? Um, you know, so um, discussing what, you know, you can discuss what intermittent fasting is and then what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, so um, I quite like intermittent fasting. It's definitely pros and cons to it. Um, so intermittent fasting is essentially um, time-restricted feeding, which would be referred to in the sort of research and stuff. And essentially it's just um, we're going to be real beneficial for managing the overall calorie budget. Um, I think, you know, there's loads of different ways of intermittent fasting, but it's essentially just restricting uh, your calorie intake by missing a couple of meals in its simplest form. I think probably the most common version is like a 16, eight hour fast where perhaps you have your first meal at say 12 o'clock in the afternoon uh, your last meal at say eight o'clock at night, and then you just fast until that next meal at twelve o'clock the next day. And there's no real sort of magic to intermittent fasting. I know there's like um, proposed like sort of health benefits there and stuff, um, but it's really to do with just the overall sort of nature of calorie restriction. So when it comes to say fat loss diets, we know that we need a calorie restriction for sure. And in order to reduce a calorie deficit. Um, and one of the main things is that causes perhaps um, poor adherence is hunger issues. So if for example, there's like a belief that breakfast was like the most important meal of the day and they're having maybe five or 600 calories of breakfast uh, when they didn't really need breakfast and they weren't that hungry, then essentially what they do is skip breakfast and perhaps backload the calories to the back part of the day when they perhaps are more hungry. And so say, for example, I wake up in the morning, I'm not overly that hungry, but my hunger sort of spikes um, towards the end of the day, I'd say my evening meal or before I go to bed and stuff. So it kind of makes sense for me to not really have too much um, too much of my calorie budget for breakfast or if nothing at all. And then I'll just sort of backload my calories back in the day to have more food when I'm more hungry. Um, and therefore I can satisfy my sort of daily hunger levels and therefore I can adhere to my calorie intake far better. So let's say for example, if um, you're eating two and a half thousand calories a day and wanted to drop body fat, you would, and you perhaps have 500 calories for breakfast, you essentially skip breakfast and then all of a sudden you're eating 2000 calories a day. And that's how you create your calorie deficit in order to drop body fat. So going back to it, it's just a nice way of restricting calorie intake. Um, there isn't really sort of any magic to it at all. It's just a way of uh, budgeting your overall sort of daily um, food consumption. Um, you know, there definitely has pros and cons to it. Like sometimes if you try to do this method when you are most hungry at the morning, it's probably not going to be great because this is going to lead to increase of hunger by lunchtime and back end of the day. And you're most likely going to overeat if you don't control for your overall calorie intake of the day. So that's sometimes a, a bad one. Like again, intermittent fasting is 
a tool in a toolbox um, is not really going to be beneficial for everybody. It's going to be beneficial for myself, but not for everybody. And also, it's not going to be a great one uh, if you're an athlete or if you're training with high training demands uh, first thing in the morning. So we know that carbohydrates drive exercise performance and are great for maintaining work capacity throughout and also really beneficial for recovering of glycogen stores post. So it's probably not going to be overly ideal to restrict your calorie intake and just fast surrounding your training sessions if you are training first thing. So I wouldn't really advocate it for that. Like I do intermittent fasting with a few of my athletes who essentially on their rest days, if they train in the morning, then on their rest days, we do intermittent fasting to pull the overall weekly calorie intake down. So that's when I might use it for them. Um, it's probably not going to be overly beneficial if your goal is to maximize muscle growth because we know that once you consume protein with a meal, it's going to drive muscle protein synthesis, which is essentially the process of which we build new muscle tissue. So if you wake up and you don't have breakfast, you know, seven days a week, you know, 365, you're missing quite a key opportunity to have protein in there and start to drive and drive and amplify the training adaptation. So in that case, what I do with a lot of people and what I do for myself if I'm not hungry for breakfast is do like a protein fast where I'll just have, say, a protein shake. So like 25 to 30 grams of whey protein, you know, it's maybe 120 calories. So I can still get the benefits of protein and driving adaptation, but without having all the calories associated with a high calorie breakfast. So that's the way I tend to do it. I just get the best of both that way. So yeah, you can, so it's not going to be bad for um, sort of muscle growth if you do it in that sort of uh, means. Not going to be great for people who are hungry first thing in the morning and not great for people who have high training demands first thing in the morning. Otherwise, intermittent fasting is a nice way of managing your overall uh, calorie intake for the day. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've been I've been using intermittent fasting for the last um, month or so, and I found it very, you know, very useful. A very useful tool to reduce my calories for the day. Like it, it, once you've had, you know, if you take a breakfast out of the equation, you know, you're saving yourself five hundred calories, four to five hundred calories, you know, each day, which you can either you know, you can either use to maintain a deficit or you can have them later on in the evening when you feel that hunger spike, as you said. And I, I feel like it's working very well for me. I, I usually don't be very hungry until around 12 o'clock and then I'll eat my lunch and then dinner. And, you know, if, you know you're, before you know it, you're going to bed and you, you, you've, you've created a deficit of 500 calories, which is, um, you know, very useful if you are trying to diet or lose fat or, you know, whatever. So I, I feel like it has been mm. working for me. Yeah, brilliant. And... Sometimes, like, you know, um, the hard and fast rules are actually quite beneficial for some people. You know, if you say, like, right, obviously we want to be focused on, like, habit change and behavior of long-term, like, education and stuff. But if you just tell someone just to not have breakfast, um, you know, they can just adhere to that really well and kind of maintain the rest of their lifestyle quite similar. And so if, for example, um, I know sort of a lot of athletes on their rest days will, like, go out for breakfast um, you know, they might be eating like good foods, might have like your traditional like, you know, um, poached egg, avocado, smoked salmon and like sourdough. They have like a latte with that as well. And perhaps like maybe like orange juice or something. And, you know, that's like sort of upwards of almost like a thousand calories. And if we just say like, OK, maybe like three times a week, don't do that. And now all of a sudden, like they just remove three thousand calories from their weekly sort of calorie budget. 
you know, that's, you know, that's essentially a pound to about half a kilo of body fat loss there just by doing one real simple thing and they keep the rest of their weekly um, habits and lifestyle exactly the same. So sometimes you do have to find these like easy wins with some people and the hard and fast rules of just like, say, just skipping breakfast works quite well. So again, it's it's just a nice tool in a toolbox. It's not going to be beneficial for everybody, but it is there if they kind of need it. Um, so when I sort of work with athletes, when I um, sort of like do sort of pre-sort of screening with them, I'll ask them like, when are you most hungry in the day? And if they say like, oh, I'm always hungry first thing in the morning when I get up, it's like, okay, we know this tool is not going to be useful for them. But if they say like, oh, I wake up and I just have no appetite, it's like, okay, perhaps we don't really need to overly focus on just cramming in a thousand calories for breakfast. So, you know, again, tool in the toolbox um, is there for the right scenario. And yeah, and you'd mentioned as well about um, some athletes training first thing in the morning. And I, and I know that I used, um, before obviously lockdown, I would have run a class first thing in the morning at um, a quarter past six. And some people, you know, maybe wouldn't have ate before they came in. And I just want what your thoughts on, you know, how important or how beneficial is it to eat before you train? So obviously I know that um, you don't want to be eating inside an hour before you train because you're not really getting the benefits of it if you eat within an hour before you're training. But, you know, first thing in the morning, a quarter past six, if you're training at, you know, you're not going to wake up at four o'clock to have a meal just so you can go to the gym at six, ready to train, you know, ready to train, I suppose, for, for most people anyway. Um, so what, how beneficial do you think eating before training is? Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, you know, you're definitely not going to get up at 3.30, 4am to have a decent meal. Like, it's just not realistic. And probably it's not really um, needed either. So I guess it really uh, comes down to the overall training demand first thing in the morning. Like, if you're just doing, like, a normal weight session or, like, a steady kind of, like, cardio session, you know, you don't particularly need a huge amount in beforehand and you don't have to change too much. Um, but if your training demands are, you know, a lot higher and you're doing more high-intensity-based stuff or it's in longer duration, that can be very dependent on um, your carbohydrate availability, so the amount of carbohydrates essentially you have in the muscle, then, yeah, it would be wise to sort of think about programming uh, to account for that. So in that case, what I'll do is I will perhaps do a little bit of like a mini carb load the day before or perhaps backload their calories to the back end of the day. So the evening meal is higher in carbs and that almost acts as a pre-training meal for the next day. So when they wake up, their glycogen stores are going to be relatively topped up. Now, we know that your glycogen stores won't really go down all too much while you sleep. Um, they only really go down when you start doing some form of activity and muscle contractions. Um, but your liver glycogen will go down slightly to help manage your blood glucose while you sleep because that blood glucose is going to be used to um, help maintain sort of physiological function while you sleep. So what you might need to do then is perhaps 60 minutes before, just grab some form of like fruit. Um, it's just something that's easily digestible that sits well in your stomach. If it's something like a banana or something, that should be absolutely fine. And that should see you through a standard sort of like 60-minute session. Um, like you don't need to have a huge amount before. And then when you finish your session, that's when you start having more of like your protein and the higher amount of sort of carbohydrates there. Like if we say you had a huge meal before we train, like within close proximity, um, you know, it's just not going to digest and absorb fully. And it's just going to be sitting in your gut while you exercise and you're going to feel pretty sick. Like you see um, 
I don't know, I guess you see like images on Insta and stuff like that. People like throwing up at their sessions are going to sort of like push CrossFit into this whole picture there. And it's a case of like, yes, you train pretty hard, but more case, you just didn't time your meal properly at all. You just ate too close to your session and, you know, it's just sitting, you got while you're training. So the kind of take home from that is, um, you know, we don't want to eat too close to our session because, you know, you're just not going to absorb and digest it fully. So that's why if you're eating first thing in the morning, I actually like having the, your pre-training meal the night before, I in terms of carbohydrates anyway, and then you just have a tiny like top-up snack about 60 minutes before, and that will see through your session quite nicely then. And then, you know, you just backload the calories after that meal in yeah, terms yeah. of starting the recovery process if the training demand warrants it. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a perfect example or a perfect explanation of it there. You know, um, and hopefully everyone can take something from that there. You know, it's not essential as you're saying there. It's not essential to eat a lot of calories. You know, eat a big breakfast before you train, or you know, and it's not it's not even achievable really to be getting up at four o'clock just to eat a food. You know, if you're training at six in the morning, or um, so I think just grabbing a piece of fruit as you said there. You know, if you can an hour before you come. You know, even you know, if it's forty-five minutes, hopefully, what do you think, Chris? Would it be fine to eat a piece of fruit forty-five minutes before your training? You know, if you're um, five yeah, yeah, it should be it. fine. Like as cliche as it sounds, again, like everybody is different. Um, I know, like I can have like, you know, a decent amount in, but maybe like, um, you know, ninety minutes before, sixty minutes a little bit less, thirty minutes less again. So, generally speaking, the closer you get to your session, the more perhaps liquidized um your meal needs to be just because it's going to support faster gastric emptying so digestion absorption so um yeah fruits and stuff is perhaps say say bananas especially like semi-solids so they should digest and stuff quite nicely in time but if you really can't um hack anything and you can get through your session fine without any sort of drops in dips in training performance it's like okay you probably don't even need anything but if you feel like you are fading towards the end of your session or you're getting lightheaded then it could be a case of, okay, you need to get something in beforehand. And if you can't get anything in 60 minutes beforehand because it makes you feel a bit sick, then maybe have it, um, you know, maybe 70, 80, 90 minutes beforehand. It might just be that little bit of a trade-off you have to sort of um, cope with to in order to get through your training session. Um, if it has to be trained first thing in the morning, or you could potentially, last case now, have like, say, some orange juice or something just to have some form of liquid nutrition in there just to help get something in you if you really can't stomach anything. And again, if your training demand warrants it, like I train first thing in the morning at the moment during this lockdown and, you know, I get up and I just train straight away. I don't really need anything in me because I'm just doing like a pretty steady sort of home weight session. But if I was going to do like a two hour bike ride, it's like, yes, I probably, well, I definitely need to get something in beforehand uh, just so I can feel for that work required. So it really depends on, um, the individual person and how much they can actually eat before that session, uh, they, perhaps their tolerance to it and the demand itself. Um, that's where I can sort of put it. Yeah, yeah. And um, then just going to touch on, you know, you mentioned their um, protein, you know, taking a protein shake in the morning as, you know, as a way of sort of getting your protein in, and or also for if you're intermittent fasting, you know, you could use a protein shake as a way to, you know, start the protein synthesis without actually consuming a meal. Um, what do you think the benefits is for your average gym goer consuming protein? You know, obviously it comes as a supplement form, but you can, 
it's it, it is it is just a macronutrient you know a lot of people think protein powder well i think that a lot of people think protein powder is this magic supplement that's going to make your muscles grow twice as fast and they don't realize that you know you get protein uh-huh. from chicken you know instead of taking a protein shake you can just eat it yeah yeah absolutely um the only time that i really like with everything um we always want to follow a food first approach like that's first and foremost uh, that's the most important thing um Whey protein supplementation or any protein supplementation, in fact, is just there for convenience and just to help you hit a higher protein target. So say, for example, if I don't know if I'm working with a sort of a tight head prop in rugby union and they're weighing about 120, 130 kilos, you know, they're going to be pushing upwards of like 250, 270 grams of protein a day. Now, that's a lot of chicken breasts and sort of fish and everything like that to get in. So sometimes then they'll look at whey protein or some form of protein supplementation in order to hit their higher uh, protein demands that they have. Um, But if you say, I don't know, weigh, I know, 70 kilo or something, and you've got moderate training demands, then, you know, you can pretty easily just get some form of protein in through your diet and you should hit your total daily intake absolutely fine without the need of supplementation. Um, the only other time I'd really look at sort of protein supplementation as well is if we're going to have, or shall we say, if we want to like rescue the protein content of a meal. So I know a lot of my clients like having overnight oats first thing in the morning. So if you just have overnight oats, it's basically oats, perhaps some milk, some berries, some seeds, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's quite low in protein. We know we're not going to have enough protein there to drive muscle protein synthesis. So what they perhaps do then is just add a scoop of protein to it so it rescues the protein content of that meal. So it's not only there for the convenience, but it's also there to you know drive sort of adaptation and stuff. So it's kind of, I split into those two kind of categories, help you to one, hit a higher protein intake and two, for that perhaps the convenience side of it. So say, for example, with uh, with us in Wasps, um, after they finished afternoon sessions at like 3 o'clock, I want them to have some protein and carbohydrates in there to drive the recovery process, initiate that. And, you know, most of them have maybe like a 30 to 40-minute drive home. So we just have a smoothie station there um, where they can put in like whey protein and everything like that. And it's they're great for them. So for the convenience side of it, so they can drink something whilst they're driving on the way home. Um so yeah, that's the way I kind of sort of coin it. Like there's nothing magic to whey protein or any form of protein supplementation. As you said, it's very much kind of the same response to chicken, fish, beef, or what have you, or a few eggs. It's um again just the personal preference side of things that comes into it. And um, you know, it really depends on the overall body weight and how much protein they need and the convenience. Yeah, and I think a major one is probably just convenience. You know, it's instead of, you know, you, like and first thing, as you said, first thing in the morning, you might not feel that hungry. But if you wanted to start your protein synthesis, you're not going to, you know, at six o'clock in the morning or seven o'clock in the morning, you're not going to you're not going to eat a chicken breast. Probably not, you know. And so a protein shake might be just perfect there just to just to start the protein synthesis off. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, And um, so then just, just as we're talking there, we were, you were saying about um, taking a protein shake off, you know, or, you know, increasing your protein in order to build muscle um, post-training. Um, but obviously, you know, one of the main things you need for um, 
muscle growth is uh well this is what the question is is do you need a surplus of calories to build muscle so i know that a lot of a lot of diet um you know information and advice would suggest that you need to be in a surplus of calories to gain muscle um is that do you, in your opinion or you know is it essential to have a surplus of calories to gain muscle or can you build muscle at yeah that's, that's a great question um so if we look at say the three sort of cornerstones or the three pillars to muscle growth, we have a weight training stimulus, which is the most important thing that's going to drive the training response and adaptation. Then your nutrition then looks to amplify this response. And this is done by two main things. So your protein intake and your calorie intake. So if one of these three things are lacking, then that's going to be rate limiting to muscle growth. So the question I get a lot asked as well is, can I build muscle and drop body fat at the same time? And the answer is that is yes, 100%. You can definitely build muscle and drop body fat at the same time. But the question is then is, can you build muscle optimally in a calorie deficit? And the answer to that is no. And it really comes down to energy availability. So after you've, um, you know, um, sort of use your calories to fuel overall daily sort of activity levels and normal sort of physiological function and stuff like that how much energy do we have left over to sort of um cater to the demands of building muscle so long story short like a small calorie surplus will be beneficial in uh, maximizing muscle growth again you could build muscle at calorie maintenance but it's perhaps going to be a little bit rate limiting because you're not going to have enough calories on board um but what we know as well is that we can't force feed muscle growth. And you see a lot of lads do this in particular, like they're just going to try packing in calories and calories and calories and just sort of chase the scale weight and, um, you know, just end up putting on a lot of body fat in the process. And if the athletes, then this is only going to sort of make them slower in the long term because their power to weight ratio um, goes down. You know, they're now running with a lot of unwanted body fat. So it's definitely going to be, not be beneficial for them or generally speaking, anybody in, anybody trying to build muscle really and over sort of aesthetic purposes so yes we do need to have uh, some form of calorie surplus if the goal is to maximize muscle growth and do things optimally now what research has shown is that the more trained you become so the greater your training experience i generally speaking most athletes or most or bodybuilders been training for a long time uh, they need less of a calorie surplus um, because essentially they grow muscle at a much slower rate because of being having a perhaps a more trained status where say a newbie in the gym who's never been to the gym before, you know, they can have much higher rates of muscle growth. So therefore what research has shown is that they can handle a lot higher sort of calorie surplus without sort of putting on as much sort of body fat or if any at all, because again, it's far more of an energy expensive process. So um that's why i kind of look at like when it comes when it comes to me building sort of plans for athletes or individuals i look at the training status like how long have you been training for uh and that's going to dictate how much of a calorie surplus i put them in if that's their goal so if they say an, uh, an athlete or been training for maybe like four or five years and are very trained then you know you may be looking at put them in maybe like a five to ten percent calorie surplus where if you're a complete newbie and never been to the gym before you may go slightly more aggressive at maybe you know 10 to 20 percent of a calorie surplus um and then you know or by all means you just adjust that calorie intake depending on their progress then um but you know like we mentioned you definitely can build calorie so build muscles in a calorie deficit 
but is really under certain sort of circumstances. One, you're a newbie and you know you basically respond to any form of training stimulus. And second of all, if you've been injured and you're coming back from an injury like return to play and stuff, and you're just sort of rebuilding a muscle mass loss and you perhaps have greater resensitization to muscle um, mass stimulus through weight training as well. So there's a few sort of scenarios where you can build quite well in a deficit, but for most, um, you do need some form of surplus, whether it be small or slightly bigger, depending on your training status, um, if that answers the question. Yeah, it does. It does. It answers it very well. Um, I think that's everything, Chris. I mean, that's brilliant there, what you said. You know, everything has been very, very clear. And I hope everyone who is listening um, definitely can take something away from it today, whether it be about intermittent fasting, um, eating before training, or reducing your calorie intake in some form or another. Um, I hope everybody has enjoyed listening. Um, Chris, thanks so much for coming on. Um, what is your Instagram as well for anyone else? No, awesome. No, thanks, everybody. John. Thanks for having me on. Um, really good discussion here. Really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, um, best place to get hold of me is, um, yeah, Instagram at Nutrition. Um, pretty active on social media, especially Instagram. So to keep up with updates and everything else going on, um, yeah, just uh, drop me a follow there. Um, I also have like my own podcast as well. So the Average to Elite podcast, I'm sort of five or six episodes down now. So I launched that a little while ago, but that's going to be posting every sort of Monday as well. So uh, keep up to date and in tune with that as well. Brilliant, Chris. Um, so thanks so much as well for coming on. Um, and yeah, I'll... No, awesome. Thanks, Jordan. ...in the future.